The war in Ukraine raging and intensifying, now three weeks, has left us all reeling, wondering, shocked. What is behind all of this? What is driving this war? What is Mr. Putin thinking? What makes him tick? Is there a way to influence him? And what will be the end game? How will this all conclude? And finally, what can we do about it? All these questions remain unanswered. And yet, surprisingly, there's an event that happened 24 centuries ago, this week, that provides us with extraordinary and fascinating insight into all these questions and more. The event is Purim, the famous story of Purim, which will take place tonight, tomorrow, Friday. It's a story that goes back almost 2,500 years ago. And yet, it provides us with unbelievable clarity. So please join me in this unique and unprecedented discussion. Powerful parallels between Purim and Putin. The hidden story, five secrets Purim teaches us today. Hello, hi, this is Simon Jacobson. I want to wish everybody a very happy Purim. Please join me now in a special program in honor of Purim, but also in honor of the events, the tragic events happening in Europe, in the Ukraine specifically. The title of this program is Parallels Between Purim and Putin, The Hidden Story, Five Secrets, Purim teaches us today. This program is dedicated by Rachel Kaplan for Rafur Shlema to all those in need of complete and speedy healing and recovery. It's now three weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war continues to intensify, raging, and leaves us all shocked, disbelief. What exactly is happening here? What did Ukraine do wrong? What are the driving forces behind this war? What makes Mr. Putin tick? Who is he? And how can we influence him? What will be the end story? How will this all conclude? And finally, what can we do about it? As vital as these questions are, 
we are equally dumbfounded and completely at loss to answer them. It's everybody's guess. People are making different attempts, sanctions, support, moral support, financial support. It's all wonderful. And we must appreciate it. But is it achieving its goals? And what again is the real bigger story here? Now very often, when you look at the trees, you cannot see the forest. When you're in the moment, you don't necessarily see the bigger picture. So though we have to deal with the moment and we have to fight our battles and deal with the challenges, and especially when you see innocent men, women, and children being killed, being terrified, evacuating. Almost three million people so far have left Ukraine. So we must do everything possible in the short term. So where do we find the deeper answers? So surprisingly, we actually go back in time, in history. Let us travel back 24 centuries to the events of Purim back in ancient Persia and we will discover fascinating, powerful parallels that can help inform us and also guide us today. So what's the story briefly? We all know the famous story. The Megillah is the text, the Purim text that is read every Purim recounting everything that occurred at the time. And it begins, It was in the days of Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. He was the king of Persia who ruled over 127 countries. From India to Ethiopia. Spanning basically the entire world population at the time. There you go. That's the first similarity. What is the largest country on earth physically? In actual square footage, square miles? It's Russia. It spans through Asia, through Europe, literally half the globe, similar to the Persian Empire. And just as there was a king of Hashverus, there's the leader of Russia called Mr. Putin. When you begin to read the story of Ahasuerus in the Purim story, you start seeing the similarities. Now, Ahasuerus rose to power. I'm not going to go through every detail. I leave that to each of us to dig deeper. But let's talk about some major highlights and critical components in Ahasuerus's rise to power. And what he does is throws a party. That's how the Megillah begins. It starts with a party. A party for, the, for his entire empire. He's showing off. Ahasuerus is showing off. But there's a little story behind the story. Why suddenly throwing a party now? And why is it so significant? So bear in mind, the events that took place for him happened between the two, the two temples that stood in Jerusalem. After the destruction of the first temple, there were 70 years, and then there was the building of the second temple. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, of which Persia, Ahasuerus, is a direct successor and heir to. And then there was the second temple, 
which stood after that another 420 years later to be destroyed by the Romans. Now, everyone knew a prophecy that the Jews, after the t- destruction of the first temple, would be re- able to rebuild the second temple. And the nations of the world, including the kings, were aware of it, and therefore they were careful. But they started calculating that maybe 70 years have passed already. They all knew about the 70-year period. And they thought, since it passed, the Jews will never rebuild the second temple. God will not allow them to do so. But they made mistakes in their calculations, including Ahasuerus. So he began to show off that the Babylonian conquest, where they had robbed the holy temple of its most precious vessels, he began to show that off in this party. Certain type of vanity, unaware that he had miscalculated, because the second temple would be rebuilt a few years later. So miscalculation it drove this party. In many ways, people describe Mr. Putin as overreaching and miscalculating as well. He thought it would be easy for him to just invade Ukraine. Ukraine would easily surrender, and he would an- annex it like he did Crimea, and that would be it. But it didn't exactly work out that way. To say it's a show of vanity, well, without going into all the details, and we don't know everything going on in this man's mind, but clearly it's also part of the pride we know. He's always felt that Russia was wrong at the end of the Cold War over 30 years ago and wants to reclaim what he feels is the ownership and belongs to Russia. So many ways, yep, first parallel, miscalculations. Now, the 127 countries of, uh, of Ahasuerus didn't begin with 127. It began with, it says, in the commentaries, there were seven, and then there was 20, and then there was 100 more, and that added up to 127. You see there also the building of an empire, not just of a few countries or several countries, but slowly building it, and that's exactly what Mr. Putin is intending to do. And he's made it very clear. No one believed he would act, but now he's acted. So we find the first, that's the first tremendous similarity. But it goes far deeper than that. It's not just finding a connection. You're talking about leaders, leaders that leading large empires here. And a miscalculation that we still don't know where it's going to go. Just like in the story of the Megillah, we don't know where it's going to go off. And what does he do next? He shows off Ahasuerus. He's showing off. He's showing all the vessels. He's showing his power. He's showing it all. And then he does another thing. He decides, in his vanity to summon his beautiful wife Vashti. He wants to show her off. And what happens? She rebuffs him. Mr. Putin thought that he would easily enter Ukraine and Ukraine would easily surrender and and President Zelensky and his government would acquiesce and allow Mr. Putin control. But no, he was rebuffed. Rebuffed in ways that were surprising to all, including to the military experts and still being rebuffed and humiliated. And what does the Megillah tell us with Ahasuerus? As he was humiliated, he seethed. He was furious, but he couldn't show it publicly, so it was internal. Obviously, he would express it afterwards, but it says he seethed within because he was furious at this, re- at this rejection. 
And then, of course, he summons his counselors and they advise him to ultimately kill Vashti. And he does that. What does President Zelensky say right at the beginning of the war? He says, I am the number one target to be killed. And number two are my family. Now that hasn't happened yet, thank God, and we hope it doesn't happen. But again, that's similarity. And you can imagine when a person who's in that type of level of power, and he's convinced, Mr. Putin is no fool. He entered into Ukraine with a strategy, feeling he would win. He didn't go there to lose or to be compromised. So you could imagine when it's not going according to plan, how angry and furious one would get and would only lead him to become even more aggressive, which is exactly what has happened. And that's what Achashverosh did, as Achashverosh did, more aggressive, to try to eliminate what he thinks was a humiliation and also a rebuffing and rejection of his plans. But the story does not end there. That's what we know till now in the story of Ukraine today. Back Purim 24 centuries ago, let's go back to Purim and go back and forth between Purim and Putin. Interesting play of words, P-U-R-I-M. Only two letters are changed, R and the M. T and the N replace the R and the M. The story does not end. What happens next is a continuing saga. And briefly, the story continues that suddenly we hear about another seemingly tangential event. Big Samviseresh, two of the ministers, two of the advisors, people in, in, the, in the empire, are plotting a conspiracy to kill King Achashverosh. Mordechai, enter Mordechai, another advisor to the king, another minister, overhears their conversation. He understands their foreign language. And he reports it back to the king. And the king puts them to death. They're avoiding the assassination plot against him. This would be relevant, it'll become relevant as the story unfolds, and we'll soon see how it could also be relevant to our understanding of things. And then the story continues, enter Haman. Haman, the wicked, cruel Haman, who is infuriated himself against the Jewish people, especially when he sees Mordechai not bowing to him. So we have Achishverosh, the empire, the, the king of the empire. We have Mordechai, the hero. We have Haman, the villain. And then enter Esther, who ultimately replaces Vashti and becomes the queen, the secret queen, meaning no one knew what her heritage was, that she was Jewish and she was associated and related to Mordechai, becomes the queen of Achishverosh. And when you put all these pieces together, the story unfolds as we continue. Haman plots, Achishverosh acquiesces and agrees to kill all the Jewish people. Now, though the war in Ukraine is not against the Jews per se, but there are many Jews there, close to half a million, and all innocent people are God's children. So you see the similarities here constantly popping up in different angles and different perspectives. And you see also the different players in the game. To say President Zelensky is like Mordechai, well, he is Jewish, is Yehudi, and as a Jew, he's made us all proud of how he stood up to the enemy. In this case, the king, Putin, Mr. Putin of Russia. And um, I don't know if we can find a Haman in all of this, but we have to study Achashverosh a little deeper. Because here comes the question. What is, what does, who is Achashverosh? He's the most 
most paradoxical and mysterious figure in the entire Meg- the Megillah. But before I get back to that, let me continue the story just to keep the narrative going. So Haman plots, Achashverosh agrees, and then comes the efforts to save the Jewish people. The efforts both by Mordechai on his end and Esther on her end, the prayers, the gathering of the children, turning to God, Esther then beseeching the king through her own entire initiative, inviting Haman to a party and then to another party, and finally exposing Haman as being an enemy. And everything gets turned around. Haman is hung. Achashverosh transforms the decree, and it becomes, instead of becoming a total genocide of the Jewish people, it becomes the greatest celebration. Transformation, not just the elimination of the decree, a transformation, nepach. It gets transformed into what? Into the miracle of Purim, which is what we celebrate this week, 24 centuries later. But what is, who is this man, Achashverosh? When people say, who is this Putin? What's driving him? What, he could have perhaps gained everything he wanted. Why did he have to go into such an aggressive war? An invasion that is also costing him entirely. He had done many good things for Russia. And here suddenly he's ready to compromise his entire legacy. What is driving this person? So let's ask the question about Achashverosh. What drives Achashverosh? So actually in the Talmud, we have different opinions about this Achashverosh. Was he a fool? Or is, was he wiser than all? Or something in between? And all those opinions are there. Because sometimes it seems like he's just being led by whoever is uh, impressing, uh, who is impressionable and whoever talks to him last seems to be convincing him. Haman convinces him of uh, the, killing the Jews. Esther convinces him the other way around. And I should have mentioned in the middle of the story, which is vital, belongs a little earlier, that insomnia plays a tremendous role. With the sleep of the king, he couldn't sleep at night. So they came to read him some of the chronicles of the events that happened. And he's reminded of the story of Bixam Viserj where Mordechai saved his life and then he comes to reward Mordechai, which is a critical piece in the entire story as well. That's actually where the beginning of the end, the beginning of the redemption. So what drives this man, Achashverosh? And the answer, all the above. Sometimes we say Achashverosh, who Achashverosh, that he was wicked from the beginning to the end, in many ways worse than Haman even. But he was wise. He let Haman be the one that was the instigator. Sometimes we see the other way around, especially the end of the story, where Achashverosh ends up becoming the savior. Esther persuades him, and he kills the enemies of the Jews and causes the whole celebration. So Achishverosh ends up being a hero. Is he a villain? Is he a hero? The same question we ask about Mr. Putin. As far as the Jewish people go, in general, Mr. Putin's rise to power 30 years ago brought a great renaissance to Jewish life in Russia. In many ways, you see him as a hero in some matters. We're not saying he's perfect. I'm sure many, many flaws and many, much critique but at the end of the day, Jewish life thrived, as did many other aspects of Russian life. And everyone thought that would be the trajectory. Yes, his opinions may be very different. He saw the West as an enemy and vice versa. Plenty of confrontation. But the world was a world of peace. There was no war in the last 30 years. Here and there, yes, the, the annexation of Crimea, the different in Afghanistan, 
Georgia, but not more or less remain in a peaceful way. And suddenly, which is what shocks everyone, suddenly everything turns. Just like Achashverosh, things are constantly topsy-turvy here. Not because he's confused, because he has different voices within him. So I would submit that a psychological analysis of Achashverosh will help us understand also Mr. Putin, and that he has different voices within him. You see, he's not turned anti-Semitic against the Jews in Russia, thank God, due to all of this. Many say he's not even an anti-Semite. He was actually very, he grew up in a very favorable way looking at the Jewish people. And yet, his attack of Ukraine in this way, unprovoked, leads us again reeling into the contradictions. But we see those contradictions throughout the whole story of Purim. So what makes them tick? We have to understand the different complexities here, the different voices. On one hand, I am convinced that Mr. Putin wants to create a better world the way he understands a better world. The problem is that vanity can get in the way. And even though Akhishverosh does end up being the hero, and we hope the same for Mr. Putin as we shall discuss, but meanwhile, is a very dangerous situation. There's a decree to kill all men, women, and children, similar to what is happening now in Ukraine. So understanding Akhishverosh is critical. But let's go a little next step here. What would influence a man like Mr. Putin? Sanctions clearly are not going to frighten him. They may hurt him. They may have long-term consequences. But it's not going to be enough. What, what influenced Akhishverosh? Self-interest. Self-interest. He heard about his own life being at risk. He was saved. Later, that would come back to remind him of Mordechai's heroic act to, and wanted to reward him, which was the beginning of the downfall of Haman, of the wickedness. So we know that people have called for Putin's head and he should be taken down. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes and I have no inside information. But I think about it, that Mr. Putin has to be convinced through self-interest, just like Achishverosh was. You have to find perhaps those that have saved his life in the past or maybe now and find a way that he understands that it's in his interest to change course here. Achashverosh was led by Haman to go into one direction. In other words, Achashverosh had the voice of Haman within him, but he also has the voice of Mordechai within him. And that's a big part of the epic story of the struggle between the two voices in Achashverosh. You sometimes wonder, you know, here he was convinced to kill all the Jews. And then he's changed his mind. Was he so wishy-washy? The Talmud says that he was this type of very impressionable, very constantly changing, wishy-washy type. But you have to think, he's a man that was quite intelligent. He did rise to power. So it's most probable what the Talmud is saying is not that he was some superficial guy that just changes his mind every day. But he had two voices. Like many people have two voices. And our goal is here, and I'm not looking to justify Mr. Putin's uh, actions, but the goal is ultimately, obviously, is to end this, this hostilities, to end the war, to end the bloodshed, and to create peace. Now, you could do it with pressure, and you used to have to use every pressure possible. That's why we go to war. You see in the Megillah, they went to war. But there's also another war, a war, an intelligent war, a strategic one. How do you get to the person? Now again, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, 
But from the Megillah, we can learn much about how Achashverosh was ultimately persuaded. Because you could ask the question, why do we need that whole part of the story? Let's say there was no plot or conspiracy against Achashverosh, and Mordechai had not overheard it. And later, and the king did not have insomnia. Esther was his queen, and she would have done her part and ultimately perhaps overturned the decree without all that. But you see that Megillah makes it a point that you also want him to understand it's in his interest. Not just because he just loved Esther, but also in his own personal interest. And that is a critical component in any battle, a psychological component, to find that angle, which could be the turning point, that perhaps it will be the wake-up call, that one night Mr. Putin may wake up, and may that be right now, middle of the night, unable to sleep, and remember something that happened in his life, something that someone did for him, a favor, a kindness that saved his life. And that insomnia could end up turning into the salvation. So let's not rule out that option, among all other options. As you see in the Megillah, we'll discuss now more at length, what was not the only aspect, but that's a critical component, and that's why when we read the Megillah on Purim, we raise our voices, we start reading on a higher tone, which you could ask the question, the fact that the king couldn't sleep at night, is that the beginning of the, a higher tone? Why do we begin there? Because that's the tchila, that's the beginning of the redemption. That was the first awakening, both physically and also spiritually, a wake-up call that triggered something in Achashverosh that would shift his way of thinking and starting to think more positively about Mordechai instead of what he heard earlier from Haman, all the terrible things about Mordechai. The beginning of the transformation that ultimately transformed the darkest to the greatest light. So, so far, we find, again, more parallels, ideas, concepts. And again, I'm sharing just brief points and highlights. There's no question if you read deeper into the story and more details, you can find even more insights. And I would not dismiss the need to look into this text to find answers that are critical today in matters of life and death here, yes, in the 21st century. Now, in the effort itself, what does it consist of? What should we be doing? That's like the next question. What should we be doing about it? So let's again look into the Megillah. What did Mordechai do? What did Esther do? So you see several things. Mordechai could have said, listen, I'm going to turn to God, pray, I will gather children, we'll say the prayers, we'll do everything that the people, the Jewish people always knew they needed in the times of salvation. It's a terrible decree. We're talking about the genocide of every man, woman, and child. Every Jew on earth. Everyone. A total holocaust. And yet we see how Mordechai tells Esther, no, this is the reason you came there. Ulai. Maybe for this reason is why you became queen, for this moment. In other words, he wanted her to make an effort. It wasn't just enough. And, and, and at the same time, Esther responds, Leich knes, gather all the Jews, and let them fast and pray. So we see there's a combination of human initiative, and ingenuity, and intelligence, and prayer. Why? Because every true war has to be fought on two fronts. There's the physical front, and there's the spiritual front. Both are critical. When Jacob was co- confronted his brother Esau after 20 years, and they were mortal enemies, Esau wanted to kill him. So Jacob did three things. 
He prayed to God. He, he bribed Esau, a way to appease him. And he prepared for war. You have to cover all your bases because God says, I'm not just giving you prayer. I'm also giving you intelligence. I'm giving you tools and, and instruments and weapons. And you have to use them all. Now, thank God, in the case of Jacob, two out of the three were enough. The prayer and the appeasement. And he did not need to go to war. In every situation, we need to cover all the bases here. And the same thing is what they did in the story of the Megillah, which teaches us what we need to be doing today. Every possible effort has to be made to protect innocent civilians. When you see such horrific sights and visions, President Zelensky just spoke earlier, the day before, on Tainus Esther, the day before Purim, the day when we fast in honor of Esther, in honor of the fast back then. He spoke about and showed images, horrific images of the sights and the killings and the brutality going on in the cities, ravaging the cities of Ukraine. And he appealed to both houses of Congress. So the fact of the matter is we have to do everything possible, exactly as President Zelensky is requesting, and even more, to protect freedom. I mean, this isn't just one country, as he pointed. This is the very freedom, the basic principles that we all stand for. Now, I'm getting, I'm getting into the politics of it and NATO and what we, where we do get involved and whether we want to get enmeshed or more enmeshed and so on, or there's a, the potential of a third world war. But at the end of the day, it is a war against a certain moral morality and the values that we stand for in freedom. You know, back when the United States became a country, and it went to the Revolutionary War against its mother country called Great Britain, England, United Kingdom. It was ultimately, they were forced to do so. You read in the Declaration of Independence, you could almost see an apologetic tone that when we see that we cannot continue because we're being oppressed and we want to be free people, time comes to sever our ties and bonds and become a free nation. So we're talking about the principles that we all believe in that have really been have been the hallmark of progress, which was really the story of Purim as well. What right does one person or a few people come to perpetrate genocide against an entire nation just because you don't like them, just because they're not like you? Like Haman said to Mordechai, There's this one nation spread between all your uh, nations, between all your countries. And their religion, their beliefs are different than ours. So, there you have perhaps one of the first documented events back 2,500 years ago almost of the battle for, for the, the right for people to choose as they want to be. They cannot have their own beliefs. They have to bow to Haman. They bow to someone greater than Haman, to God. Not worshipping a human being. So essentially, there's also the, the battle over these rights. So we have to do everything possible to fight such a battle. And you actually see that with all the miracles that happened in Purim, there was an actual war. And the enemies were killed. Not because we want war. It's the last resort always. But that's what you do when people are attacking you. That's called defense, self-defense. But the second part of the battle is to do the, also everything we can in our power to be ingenious, to come up with strategies. And if it need be, bribery, appeasement, sanctions, whatever it takes to convince another. But appeasing is an interesting one. Because appeasement, we also know, 
what Winston Churchill famously said during World War II, that appeasement of the enemy in the time of war is like feeding the crocodiles in the hope you'll be eaten last. Appeasement can feed your enemy. Just surrender, just give up. And then what happens? You embolden and empower your enemy to go even further. So the Ukrainian resistance is actually a sign, no, we're not going to just lay down and die. We'll do whatever it takes. And we're not going to just appease. But appeasement together with strength, appeasement with intelligence, finding ways, like I said earlier, either finding someone that has done Putin a great favor or other ways that is in his self-interest and incentive to some way save face and, and, and finish this terrible chapter is critical to figure out different methods. And that's what we see. Esther did what she had to do. She came up with all kinds of ideas, inviting Haman to a party, so-called lulling him in, thinking that he has her confidence, and then ultimately turning, turning the whole thing around. So Esther did her part. So that's the second part, which is whether it's appeasement, turning to the king Ahasuerus, appealing to him. And he's saying to her, whatever you want, give me, I'll give you half my kingdom. So we see in addition to the actual war, also ingenious ways and strategies to deal with the enemy and to deal with the battle and do whatever it takes to help. That, that's on the second front. And finally, the third front, the spiritual front, the prayer. Gather all the people, all the Jews. Pray, fast, pray. The Medrash, the Talmud tells us about Mordechai gathering 22,000 children. Just the other day, they had in Israel and across the world, children gathered at the temple, at the, at the, at the Western Wall, the temple, near the Temple Mount, saying prayers. Exactly what happened by the time of Mordechai. He got brought the children together and asked them to say certain verses, verses that have the power to repeal and to overturn decrees and different plots and conspiracies. And that comes the spiritual component. Again, something each of us, and this is the third part, is something each of us can do. Because don't ever underestimate the spiritual component. Not only does it create a collective energy that adds morale and strength and support to the people in Ukraine, but it also pierces heaven and covers the third part, which is that God intervene and use every method possible. But God wants us to do all three. As a matter of fact, in the story of the Megillah, you don't even see the name of God. It's all concealed and hidden. It's behind the scenes. But it's part of the story. As you look at the end of the story, you realize there's an invisible hand here, which we'll talk about some more shortly. So we also have here what we are to do. The Megillah offers us direct instructions. What we are to do. Each one in our own given situation. Our spiritual war generally includes three things. What I would often call the spiritual spa. Study, prayer, action, spa, as in cognitive, emotional, and behavioral conditioning. Mind, studying, dedicating that study to the people in Ukraine, to the innocent people. And what are we studying? We're studying what God wants of us. Studying a higher transcendent teaching. Prayer. Emotional conditioning. And that is in some way emoting and connecting. And that could be through deeper love for each other. Showing unity among ourselves. Even when we show unity in our own communities, in our own homes and families. 
Unity ripples across the world. Unity here, like the butterfly effect, affects unity there. And above all, war is the antithesis to unity. The ultimate divisiveness. The ultimate hostility. So loving each other, showing love and care, which of course Purim, how do we symbolize Purim? How do we celebrate it? Through the mitzvahs of what? Of sending gifts to one another. Of giving money to the poor. Demonstrating unity, as the commentaries explain, because the battle was, Haman said, they're one nation spread all over. He was trying to indicate that they were all over the place. No, but we're amechot at the same time. He also said the same words. He himself, the enemy, said they're also one. No matter how diverse we are, we are one, and we demonstrate that through the mitzvahs and the good deeds we do on Purim, which all symbolize unity. Like the leich kuneis kol gather all together. What is the best way to fight war? Is by fighting for unity. That is the spiritual weapon, the antithesis of war is unity, deeper love. So don't think that it's just something happening in Europe and Ukraine. Every little battle, every skirmish, every hostility, every divisiveness, even between two friends, between spouses, between parents and children, has an impact. So it's time to also look at ourselves, as the Megillah tells us, as the Purim story tells us, to look at ourselves. What are we doing? What can we do to intensify more unity? even on a small scale, on a microcosmic scale, definitely on a macrocosmic scale, wherever we have that capacity. And that's the second. And, be, and finally, the behavioral is actual acts of goodness and kindness. You actually send gifts of food. Mishleach manas means gifts, food gifts, parcels of food. And matanas levyenim are financial support. Not just emotional, but also financial the support that has been poured out in supporting Ukraine and its, and its the evacuation efforts and the survival efforts and everything that is necessary th- that they need has been overwhelming and beautiful to see. And that's the third component in the spiritual battle and war. So we have in the Megillah also advice and guidance of what we do. And finally, the big question, where will it all end? How, what is the end story? How will this all come to a close? So in the Megillah, this story is very clear. At the time, it was tragic. There was a decree. Let's not forget, men, women, and children. All of them were going to be killed in a particular day, a particular time period. Put yourself in the shoes of that, literally like the Holocaust. And there was no seemingly no hope. And yet things turned around. All those efforts we discussed turned it all around. V'napachu. It became a transformation that instead of being a day of annihilation and genocide, God forbid, it became a day of la yehudim That for the Jews, it was a day of tremendous celebration. And we see Purim, a unbridled jubilance and joy and celebration without any limits. Adela completely super rational. Which can only be, the catalyst for that can only be something that's tremendously dark. You can have natural joy from different things in your life. But the greatest joy is that comes from complete transformation from the darkest to the light. That was the story of the end. And Nachashverus does turn around and does become a hero at the end. So Mr. Putin has great hope ahead of him. He has a choice to be made. The same thing could happen with him. Through all the efforts we're discussing, that things should turn around. And just as 
three weeks ago it turned in, it turned downhill from lightness to dark in the invasion of Ukraine, it could turn around like that. Why not? We see it in the story of the Megillah and we see in, this, in history in general and we see it how it happened in the negative. Why can't it happen in the positive? But this isn't just, this isn't just wishful thinking. It comes with great efforts. I wish I would have a conversation with Mr. Putin, open up the Megillah and tell him this. Let him understand he has the ability not just to create a greater legacy, to find a way to become a leader for peace. Now, I know it sounds strange to say such a thing when you see those buildings being bombed and children being killed and maimed forever, etc. So I'm not trying to be naive here. But at the end of the day, this is a human being that perhaps just as Achashverus was ready to kill, perhaps can be turned around and from darkness can become to the, the greatest light. There's no question he needs to save face. There's no question he has to find his self-interest there. There's no question we have to address it from all the different angles we spoke about. But that's the end story. And that's what we believe is possible any given moment. So we hope this will be, this Purim will actually happen, this transformation. But we need to be wise, and that's why it's so critical to look back in history. To understand the present and the future, you have to look back and see the panorama. The events that all led up to, which is exactly the story of Purim. Many different events that when you look at it, if you were living through those nine, ten years when it all happened, you know, it's a span of over ten years of the Megillah. It didn't happen in the, a week. So if you were living through it, ten years is a long time. You would have seen the tragic, you'd seen the ambivalence, you'd see the, ultimately the salvation, but it didn't happen overnight. It's only in retrospect, when you come and you connect the dots, you suddenly see a story emerge. That's how we have to look at events today. So we have to deal with the moment, and there's no question we have to address it in the fullest capacity, but also understand that there's the bigger context of it, the hidden story in it all. And in that sense, in that sense that's the final picture, a total transformation of La Yehudim but not just La Yehudim, to all people, like it says, Rev that all the na- that many of the, the nations also were transformed. Everybody was impacted. Until this day, almost 2,500 years later, we celebrate Purim. Not just as events that happened then. These days we remember and we recreate the, the Arizal. The Holy Arizal says that we don't just remember what happened. By remembering, we are recreating what happened. Because that same energy of Purim then is the energy of Purim today in 2021. 2022, I should say. It's the same energy. So as war rages in Ukraine, Purim energy enters to give us this power, this ability to transform, literally to transform. And Achashverus then becomes the person, the savior. And he's remembered as such. So we come away then with five critical lessons. In addition to the answers to the questions I addressed earlier, we come away with five tremendous lessons. Number one is there's always a deeper story. That is the Megillah in essence. You don't see God's name ever mentioned. But when you look at all the confluence of events, you see an invisible hand. There's a hidden story there. A hidden story between each, and with, behind each character, how they interact. And when you put it all together and you look back, oh wow, it all adds up. Here suddenly Achishver is throwing a party and showing off 
He invites his wife Ravashti and she rejects him. He has her killed. All seemingly random events. It happens to be that two people plot a conspiracy against the king. Mordechai happens to overhear it. They, he, they, they, which saves the king and they kill these the conspirators. Haman suddenly appears and becomes this great villain, the Hitler of the time. Esther happens to become the new queen after all the women that the king met. Esther, wife of Odisha of, of uh, Mordechai, not knowing who she was as a Jewess. The, the king happens to be having an insomnia one night and can't sleep. They happen to read the story that happened earlier, years earlier, Mordechai saving the king's life. The king then wants to, happens to want to reward Mordechai. And who does he reward him? Well, through Haman, who happens to be in the, in the garden of the king, in the courtyard. And continuing. And Esther, who happened to end up by becoming the queen of Ahasuerus, ends up convincing the king, and the whole story turns around. What is that not a hidden story? Events in life are always that way, both on a personal level. You don't understand your life looking forward. You only understand it looking back. We have to live our life going forward, but we can only understand it as we look back at it. And that is the story of Purim in essence. That was the first message of Purim, the hidden story, and many of the details we discussed earlier. The second point is the power of transformation. Things can turn like that. When I say it like that, it doesn't mean necessarily in a second, but something that seems so dire and hopeless can suddenly become complete salvation. And God forbid the other way around as well, as we've seen. So we have to focus on transformation toward the darkness into light. The third lesson is appease. Do whatever it takes. Go to war. But also never forget the trust in God, the prayers that are necessary, the spiritual war. Which leads to, to point number four, that every physical war also has a spiritual war. So in addition to the other efforts, we have to fight that spiritual war. And number five, finally, is that there's an end to the story. We're building a new world order. Then during Purim, yes, there was a transformation, but it says, Even after that, we still remain subjects of Akashverosh. It wasn't the Geula Amitiz Vashlema. It wasn't the final redemption. Now, Thousands of years later, we are ready for the final redemption. That this time, the war is being fought. And all the pain will come to cessation. And transformation will transform it into a true, permanent redemption. Redemption means redemption for all people. Harmony within diversity. Not that one people dominates over anyone else. Everybody serve as they see fit. But there's a harmony within diversity. And we could all be part of that new world order. All nations of the world, Russia, Ukraine, Europe, the United States, and all the other nations, all the under 127 nations or whatever they may be in the world, can all become part of something greater while also respecting our differences. And all done, and the words of Maimonides at the conclusion of his magnum opus where he says, it'll be a world where there'll be no longer famine and no longer war, no more avarice, it will be a world of peace. A world whose entire preoccupation will be nothing but to know the divine. Not materialism, not self-interest, but to transcendence. A world seeking 
and absorbing and being saturated by transcendence. This is something that, yes, Mr. Putin, if you're listening to this, like King Achashverosh of old, you have the ability now to make that happen. Step back. Look at the bigger picture. Why were you putting this power that you have over such a powerful country called Russia, an ancient country? We know you're very proud. We know how much you believe in what you stand for. But the biggest thing is to become a world leader, not just a Russian leader. And I'm paraphrasing President Zelensky's words. A world leader, a leader of peace. I know an appeal to Mr. Putin sounds futile. The appeal should be to the Western world. It is also to the Western world, but why not also to Mr. Putin? Why should he not understand that he has the power to define the destiny and the future of this universe? Achishverosh, I have no doubt, in some way he came to understand that. Whether he understood it consciously, subconsciously, but clearly you see how he ultimately became a part and partner of turning, transforming the darkest moment into the brightest moment. And Mr. Putin can do exactly the same thing. And perhaps this Purim, not just perhaps, with no doubt that if we really do what we have to do, Yara Lov Ruach Memorem from heaven will enter into his mind with all the efforts we make and understand this ability to do so with all the pride and peace and on the contrary, to become a, the end of the story would be instead of the legacy concluding with an invasion, a failed or aborted invasion, but even if it's a successful one, but definitely full with, with failures, instead of that being the end story, the story is no. A man who came and rose and learned to become a hero and an ally to others and to the world, and together we build a world, a new world, a world of total peace, eradication of all crime and eradication of all violence and aggression and war, and finally, we can all live in peace. Men, women, and children, just like we want to live in peace. Everyone else on this earth also wants to. In that fashion, discovering the harmony within diversity. And that requires accessing that invisible hand, that power that's greater than us all. Which, what do you need more than that than just looking at the story of Purim back then and bring it to Putin 2022? And the parallels and the juxtaposition, that alone tells you of an invisible hand. And I have no doubt, as I said earlier, that if we look deeper into the Megillah, the story of Purim, we could find even more insights and more direction and more guidance. So I want to wish each of you, everyone, especially the people in Ukraine, a very happy Purim, a one that is a, a Purim of complete transformation from the darkest to the light, from affliction to joy, from pain to uh, celebration. Nepach, complete transformation. And all people in the world witness this, and it should be a historic moment where we can relive Purim in the fullest sense of the word in 2022 and march into the final and complete and permanent personal and global redemption. Thank you so much. This has been Simon Jacobson. A very happy Purim to you and all. And may everyone be at peace and live calm, with calm that every human being, every man, woman, and child deserves. Thank you so much. Be well. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.